Welcome to the DC Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your hosts, Sienna Hurd, 3L at American University, Washington College of Law, Elena Hoffman, 3L at the George Washington University Law School, and Dalali Daggedy, 4L at UDC David Clark School of Law. You're listening to Let's Brief It. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Let's Brief It. I'm your host, Elena Hoffman, Dalali Daggedy. So now that the Milky Way is about to get busy with visitors from Earth, how do we handle the legal matters that arise regarding space? For instance, dealing with private space activities, enforcing a contract signed in space, suing for a matter that occurred in space. Our topic today is space law, and to help us brief it and make sense of all of this space talk, our guest, Brian Israel. Brian graduated from Berkeley Law in 2009 and joined the State's Department Office of Legal Advisor, where he served as the U.S. Representative to the United Nations Space Law Body, among other roles. After leaving government in 2017, he served as General Counsel and Secretary of Planetary Resources, a pioneering space exploration company, and subsequently co-founder of Consensus Space, a startup developing open space platform for global public participation in space endeavors. He is currently the Associate General Counsel for International Law at NASA and also teaches space law at Berkeley Law. Brian, welcome to our third season of Let's Brief It. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'll state right up front that uh, the views I'll express today are, are my own and not to be confused with those of NASA or the U.S. government. Thank you for that, Brian. Really appreciate you being here. To start briefing and get straight to the questions, lately everyone is talking about space. Plans are already in motion to get non-astronauts to space. Jeff Bezos just took a trip to space. Now law schools are encouraging students to consider space law, to be honest. Space law sounds interesting, but alien to many of us. So what is space law? Well, by virtue of being aware that there's a thing called space law and being curious about what it is, you're already well ahead of where I was in law school. As a law student, I had no idea that space law was a thing. So what is it? I think what people generally have in mind when they refer to space law is a specialized area of public international law governing activities in the space domain. As you may already know, public international law governs relations between states or or countries. And at the core of the international legal framework for space are four major multilateral treaties, the Outer Space Treaty, and three treaties elaborating its principles. Many countries also have a body of laws and regulations that implement the treaties, as well as other public policies in relation to space activities. Okay, so with all of these space activities, what about the substance of space law? I think the best way to to introduce the substance of this body of international law is to start at the very beginning with the very first question ever asked about the legal character of space. And just prior to the launch of Sputnik in 1957, as the United States readied its first satellite, my predecessors in the State Department's office as a legal advisor, a few times removed, were writing legal memoranda analyzing whether territorial sovereignty extends into space. So for example, if a Soviet satellite passes above the United States territory, must the Soviet Union obtain the US consent just as if the satellite were traveling through US airspace? Would the US be within its rights to shoot it down? Now, territorial sovereignty is important for more reasons than whether you can shoot something down. We often talk about the rules of the road for space. And if you think about terrestrial rules of the road, like what side of the road do you drive on? There's always an answer to that question. 
there might be different answers for different countries, but for any road you happen to be driving on, there should always be a single answer to that question. What side of the road do I drive on? And that's, that's a good thing. And that's a feature of sovereignty. Within its borders, the sovereign gets to make the rules. And that's not a thing in space. The first principle of space law is that territorial sovereignty does not extend into space. And states cannot acquire sovereignty over space, including celestial bodies like the moon, by claim, use, occupation, or any other means. So space is special in this regard. It's the only domain of human activity not ordered around territorial sovereignty. All right, so territorial sovereignty is not a basis of governing space activities. So now what? How do we establish rules of the road for this shared domain where, you know, many satellites from many countries orbit the Earth at about 17,000 miles an hour? Much of what's in the Outer Space Treaty is an answer to that question, supplying the basic legal building blocks for governing activities in this shared domain. Really interesting. Okay, territorial sovereignty does not extend to space. But on Earth, we know the question of territory is important to jurisdiction. Where do you bring a suit? What can you tell us about jurisdiction in matters arising in space? That's a great question. So there's a body of international law that governs the circumstances under which states can apply their laws beyond their territories. And nationality is one basis. So a country can extend its laws to its nationals anywhere they may happen to be, including in space. So that's one major basis of jurisdiction of activities in spaces, is states can extend their laws. And indeed, under the Outer Space Treaty, have obligations in some instances to extend their laws to their nationals in space. There's also jurisdiction based on registration of spacecraft. So there's the treaties provide for a system where, where countries register spacecraft. And even US law, there, there's um, provisions of US criminal law called special maritime jurisdiction that provides for criminal jurisdiction aboard uh, US registered spacecraft for certain enumerated crimes. US patent laws also sort of interact with registration of, of, of spacecraft. And I expect, I mean, you know, humans in space is, is still relatively few humans uh, active in space at any given time relative to the number of humans on Earth. As human spaceflight becomes more ubiquitous, uh, expect that we'll see even more thought and likely expansion of extensions of, of jurisdiction over conduct in space. I'm just curious, what area of law do you think has influenced space law the most? Like, would you say it's maritime law or is there no one area? That's a great question. I think the law of the sea is an important analog. And I, I think the, the Antarctic Treaty uh, has, has also influenced quite a lot of the development. These international you know, legal regimes for you know, shared spaces or sort of areas of, of limited or beyond national jurisdiction we're developing at similar, similar timeframes. And so you see inspiration of, of those two areas of, of international law in the Outer Space Treaty and its progeny. It seems like a lot of the exploration into space in the future will be done by private companies from what I'm seeing in the news. What difference in space law do you think this would have as opposed to only government missions? That's a really important question. A growing majority of space activities are actually carried out by private, to say, non-governmental entities, um, whether they are private companies or nonprofits or educational institutions. And it's some, sometimes those new stories suggest that private activities in space weren't contemplated at the time the, you know, say the Outer Space Treaty uh, was, was negotiated and concluded, which simply isn't the case. In fact, one of the most, I think, pitched battles in the negotiations leading up to the uh, Outer Space Treaty was between the then Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union wanted to limit space activities to governments. 
And the US, whose companies had plans of private communication satellites even then, fought tooth and nail for, for a formulation that would preserve the possibility of private activities in space. And what resulted was called Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty um, that expressly contemplates private activities in space. It makes governments responsible, legally responsible, for the activities of their nationals in space and imposes an obligation to, to continually supervise those non-governmental activities to ensure the conformity with the provisions of the Outer Space Treaty. Now, as you might know, treaties and, and international law generally uh, bind governments directly. And so if you want to have a single rules of the road for all actors in space, whether they're a private you know, operator or a governmental operator, um, there's an extra step needed for the private operators. And that is national space legislation and regulations that extends the rules from the treaties to non-governmental operators. And, and so in theory, uh, you get a single set of rules for all operators, but that's that's very much a work in progress. What are some of the contemporary issues in space law? There are many. I'll, I'll highlight two. Um, one that gets a lot of attention and really captivates imaginations is uh, the utilization of the resources, the natural resources of celestial bodies, whether that is you know um, the water, ice on the moon, or or in asteroids. Despite a lot of headlines, um, you, you know, with, with eye-popping numbers about, say, the value of platinum in, in an asteroid, the first economic resource that uh, companies and governments are interested in celestial bodies is actually water. The idea is to explore deeper into space, and particularly to have humans beyond Earth orbit, requires living off the land, if you will, being able to utilize the, the resources where you are, uh, because bringing them from Earth is extremely costly. Launching say, water or fuel for a rocket out of Earth's uh, gravitational well is extremely expensive in terms of energy and dollars. And so the idea is if you can source things like water that you can use to make fuel and drinking water for astronauts and radiation shielding where you are, um, that will enable deeper and more sustained exploration. I think here, though, the political issues are more complex than the legal issues. They, they tend to be kind of collapsed together but there are a lot of international sort of distributive politics that are quite impassioned, um, a, a lot of concern, particularly among developing countries, that if the current crop of spacefaring countries or most advanced spacefaring uh, countries are able to uh, harvest the resources of celestial bodies first, there won't be you know, any, anything left for, for those who come later. And it's, it's, the politics are not specific to space. There's a, a larger political controversy that crosses you know, many issue areas um, of so-called resources beyond national jurisdiction, including in the high seas and the deep seabed and, you know, biodiversity, you know, beyond national jurisdiction. Another really important issue that probably doesn't get as, as much attention as it deserves is what's called the long-term sustainability of spaceflight. So with, with this growing ubiquity of activities and services that we rely on every day from, from satellites, Earth orbit, particularly low Earth orbit, is becoming more densely populated, more congested. That increases the risks of, of collisions and the generation of, of debris. And if, if you think about if you have a, um, you know, sort of a, an, an auto accident outside, you know, the, the, the debris settles down and can be cleaned up and swept away and the road reopens. In orbit, it, it keeps going for, for quite, quite some time. And so if you think about all the debris from all the collisions, it's, it's, it's cumulative um, and it makes it more expensive and difficult to operate in certain orbits. And theoretically, there could come a point where you have cascading collisions that remove whole orbital planes from use for, for, for generations. 
Uh, so this is obviously something we're trying to avoid. And it, it turns out that there's no sort of, no one government can have the solution. This requires international cooperation because the satellite industry is, is a global industry. And so it's, it's, it's very much a collective action problem um, that, that requires international cooperation to solve. I think that the um, awareness is, is, is building of the problem and, and perhaps political will to take the kind of bold action needed to ensure that we're able to use space uh, for generations to come. Just a really quick follow-up on something you said regarding water in space. Are we sometime in the future, we'll be looking at water license, water rights, if the U.S. discover water, have to do a license to um, Russia or do a license to China? I'm, I mean, how does that, how would that play out if it becomes the case where water is discovered on? That's, that's, that's a great question. And, and here we'll get into uh, upper division uh, space law um, to simplify, perhaps oversimplify the legal positions around the utilization of space resources. There's really two separate questions that tend to be collapsed in, in, into one. The first question is if, say, a, a US operator were at, um, were, say, on the moon and discovered you know, a water ice deposit, could that operator you know, harvest the ice? convert it to water, use it, sell it, own it. Um, and and the, the, the U.S. interpretation of, of the Outer Space Treaty really back to the beginning has been, yes, nothing in the Outer Space Treaty precludes uh, that operator from doing that, provided that they're sort of otherwise acting in accordance with other provisions. And indeed, there's a, there's a freedom of use of, of outer space, including its resources. At the same time, I, I said at the outset that territorial sovereignty isn't a thing. And that's really the first principle of space law is that uh, you cannot sort of assert sovereignty. You cannot claim something and kind of make it part of your territory. And so if the U.S. government were to say, uh, well, you know, we're, we're going to, this, this operator discovered it, so we're going to recognize, you know, this deposit of, you know, say water ice that's still in the moon, what's called the resources in place, um, you know, and we're, we're, going to, we're going to recognize that claim kind of, you know, and enforce it against others, that's, that's not currently possible. There have been attempts over the years to establish, you know, a, a multilateral or multinational um, regime for allocating, you know, rights and resources in place. Uh, it hasn't gotten much traction yet, uh, but that might well that that could change as the the capability and the and, and the use case matures. What you talked about brought up slightly unrelated questions in my mind. The first is. Are there any laws surrounding countries sending their garbage into space? Not that I'm aware of specifically, but um, in the U.S. at least, to uh, get a license to launch from the U.S., which is given by the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, they do inquire what is the payload, um, and, and different parts of the U.S. government sort of look at what are you putting into space, um, including whether launching a payload would be inconsistent with U.S. foreign policy interests or international obligations. Um, and so if, if it was, you know, launching garbage is kind of a landfall alternative, uh, I, I'd say that would, that would get a, quite, quite a look. It would also be quite an expensive way to dispose of garbage, I'd say. Launching <laughs> stuff into space is not inexpensive. <laughs> that is true. With how we kind of have been realizing how we treated our planet and realizing that we did not source resources sustainably and we have been using the forests way too much, using the water unsustainably. Do you think that will inform 
how we treat space in the future or do you think we will kind of make the same mistakes we did on earth it's a great question i'm i'm an optimist i like to think that uh we'll we'll carry some of that hard-earned wisdom forward i i think um different people will have different sort of sentimental feelings about um you know say how how analogous is a is a near-earth asteroid to say you know planet earth uh, if we don't, if we don't live there, is it, is it, does it exist for uh, resources to sort of fuel our expansion or, 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 or does it have some value beyond that that we're trying to preserve? Certainly, uh, I, I think many in the scientific community are concerned about, you know, the, the, the secrets of the formation of the universe that might be sort of held inside asteroids. So there's lots of interests to be balanced. It's really hard to say how it will unfold. I do know that there, there are, are projects and even non-governmental organizations that are organized around the idea that, you know, the way humankind moves out into the solar system um, is important. We should do it in an intentional way. We only get, you know, one, one you know, shot to do it the first time. And so let's, let's, let's do it in a sort of very considered way. Ryan, thank you. Um, moving on to our next question. Why career in space law? I guess we all want to know how how did you get here? Well, how I got here was by accident. Um, as I said, I, I I didn't realize space law was a thing almost until I became you know was handed the file at the State Department to be the U.S. government subject matter expert on it, and I thought, oh, space law, that's interesting. Uh, I I won't I won't go in, into the whole story other than to say you know my my dream in, in going to law school was to be an international lawyer and and to work in the State Department's office of legal advisor. And I happen to have space laws, one responsibility among others, at a time of sort of new dynamism, particularly with, with commercial space activities that, that create a lot of energy, a lot of activity, and kept me quite busy. And it, it found me more than uh, I found it. It's a fascinating field. It's a dynamic one. We're still in the relatively early days of, of spaceflight itself, um, but also the, the rules of space are still very much being written. One thing I think is important to ask is, is it space law, this area of international law uh, that we, we've just been talking about, which, which is indeed fascinating, um, that, you, that you really want to practice? Or is it space? Do you want to be sort of part of a space organization because you know, you're fascinated by space or um, you like working with engineers, you like being part of a team that, that's pushing the limits? And I, I think it's important to know that you don't necessarily need to specialize in, in space law uh, to be employed as a lawyer in a space organization or to be close to the action of a space program. Of all the lawyers employed uh, by, by space organizations, whether a private company like Planetary Resources or a public space agency like NASA, a relatively small number spend any significant portion of their time practicing space law as such. So when I was general counsel of a space company, even one that was pushing the bounds of space law, most of my attention on any given day was devoted to corporate law, employment law, IP, real estate, contracts. And yet the, the energy and the excitement of a private space program was all around me. You know, from, from my desk, I could see into the clean room where my colleagues in bunny suits were working on a satellite. Everything I did every day uh, was in collaboration with or in support of colleagues who were trying to push the boundaries of space exploration and development. And it hasn't been boring yet. You talked about the State Department as well as a private company. What other kind of legal positions are available in space law? Well, so so for you know the, the, the international law field that is space law and the kind of the national implementation of that, I'd say you know the the, the big 
big ones are, are, are NASA, um, the State Department, the Department of Defense. Across all of those organizations, there are relatively few lawyers focusing their time on space law. Um, so at the State Department, there was one person. That was, I think, one-seventh of my responsibilities. So perhaps NASA has the largest space law group. The group I now lead um, has about five attorneys who, who work full-time on this. Now, it's just sort of adjacent to you know, international space law, telecommunications is a big practice area because the Federal Communications Commission, in, in order to, to have a satellite or, or a ground station or both, you need licenses from, from the FCC. So telecom is a big, important practice area. Other practice specialties common to pretty much all space programs, export controls, everything that touches a spacecraft or, or thoughts about things that touch spacecraft are export controls. Employment law, because they all have employees, uh, contracts. I, I think if, if your goal is to be around a space program and be part of it, think broadly. Space law is, is fun and important, um, but there are many, many ways to be part of the action. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming today. This has honestly been such a great discussion and I learned a lot. We hope all of our listeners have learned something new about space law as well. Thank you for listening to Let's Brief It. Thanks so much. The BC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar Communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.